If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. But Saul, still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belongings to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is chosen, a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to sit has sent me so that you may regain your sight and he filled and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we're going to continue in our series on Acts and um, I wanna to talk to you today about um, elements of conversion. Um, like a lot of St. Louisans, I suffer from seasonal allergies. Anybody here suffer from seasonal half? Usually it's about half of us because, uh, you know, because of the weather changes. And that's when they, they flare up. And so the weather here can never make up its mind sometimes in the course of a day. So <clears throat> I get them quite a bit. I got them a few days ago. And uh, so I get this allergic reaction. And so for those of you who are with me, know that there are signs though, right? I mean, this could, this could be true of a cold too, I guess. That you, you feel the, the signs of attack coming on. So you get the, you know, the itchy throat, the watery eyes. And, and for me, sometimes it can be worse because you, not only do you have the, the symptoms, but you have the anxiety of like something bad is going to happen to me. So I don't know about you, but I, I just started pounding emergency, airborne, you know, like <clears throat> essential oils, snake oil. I mean, just some, you know, you know, moon dust. I mean, I don't care. Like I'll just, I don't suffer well, okay? So I want to make sure that I don't have that, which I know you medical people will mock me. That's, I don't care. But there are just signs that you know that, that, that a cold's coming on or you're an allergy's coming on. And, and, so, and so today I want to talk a little bit about, not, not that, but there, there are symptoms or signs that you're about ready to get converted, right? 
There are some signs. Uh, and I know even that word, you know, we don't like that word converted. It sounds narrow-minded and sound very inclusive. Can't we just talk about a God who just kind of loves us? Why do we have to talk about conversion? <clears throat> and a lot of people, especially in educated circles, would just rather see us get word, rid of that word um, conversion. And some Christian, excuse me, some countries have, like, you know, they have, you know, you can worship privately. Uh, but they have no conversion laws. And so if you're trying to fit in culturally, you may have a big problem kind of waving the ban- banner for conversion. I understand that. You don't, don't want to be pushy. You don't want to be considered, you don't want to be misunderstood. Um, but conversion is actually a really beautiful word. It's a really amazing word because it opens up the door for God to bless you beyond comparison. In fact, this is what Jesus said. Jesus said this in Matthew 18. He says, truly I say to you, unless you are converted, Unless you are converted, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So in one over here, we got this risk. You know, we got this problem, you and I do, Christian. We have this risk of being misunderstood. But, but bigger, you have this risk of, 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 not, of, of closing the door on the kingdom of heaven for people experience. And, and I don't like this over here. I mean, I don't like being misunderstood. I don't like, but man, the risk over here, is just, it's just way bigger. So we need to be okay with it. We need to understand, understand that, you know, it's, it's, we're not, that, that it's a beautiful word, that it invites people into uh, amazing life. Um, but it's, so again, so I want to talk about that today. Four elements of salvation, conversion. You can use those words interchangeably, but not moral conformity, uh, not, not, you know, not some religious construct, not you got to behave a certain way. I'm talking about something that God does genuinely in your heart to transform you to be something that you could never imagine that you could be. And so there are four episodes that we see here in Paul's conversion I want to highlight. So if you're a note taker, you might, you might want to write these things down. And if you're not, just, you know, just put your head down and act like you're writing so I feel better about what I'm saying. <laughs> it really does hurt my feelings when I say that and you guys just look straight at me or even worse, <laughs> look at your phone. But um, I can see the glow. Do you guys know that I can see the glow on your phone when you open it up? Okay. So here are the four episodes of conversion. Number one, pursuit. Number two, encounter. Number three, surrender. Number four, restoration. Don't tell me you're using your phone to take notes either. It doesn't work with my kids. It's not going to work with you. One more one, pursuit, encounter, surrender, restoration. Okay, pursuit. So every once in a while, accidentally, I'll watch a romantic comedy. Accidentally. And uh, it doesn't matter which one because they're all the same, right? They even have the same characters, I think. Uh, same actors. Uh, and so what, whatever, what happens is in, in, in these romantic comedies, there's the pursuer and then there's the pursuee, right? And that's where the tension is around. So the pursuer makes uh, his or her advancements, the pursuee kind of like, oh, I don't know. And, and you know, they kind of just, there's all these like, they just kind of miss each other or somebody says something they didn't quite mean to say. And it just, you know, that's an hour and a half of your life right there. And then before, and then, um, so in these romantic comedies, though, like the pursuer, you know, it could be the leading man or the leading woman. I just, in conversion, though, the pursuer is always, always Jesus. It's always, it's never us. The pursuer is, all, Jesus always pursues us way before we could even imagine pursuing him. This is what he says in John 15. He just says, it, he just comes out and says it. You did not choose me. Sometimes we think, oh, I chose. I, you know, I found Jesus. No, you didn't. When, you, when you're the lost one, you don't find anything. That's why you're lost. <laughs> you can't. Anyway, you did not choose me, but I chose 
you. John wrote that in his gospel. John wrote this in his letter to the church, in the first letter. We love, oh, come on now, guys. We love because he first loved us. The reason why you love God, the reason why you love anyone is because God first loved you. In fact, he's going to go on and say things like this, that God is love, right? So it isn't just that we can describe what God does as loving because he preceded love. He is the pool from which love comes from. So we define love by if God does it. If God does it, it's love. And the reason why we could ever love anyone is because he first loved him, namely him. And then Revelation 3.20, this is very, you know, behold, I stand at the door and knock. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, I come to your house. You don't come to my house. This isn't, behold, you came to my house. You know, if you come to my house and you knock on the door, if you knock loud enough, if you knock, if you knock sincere enough, you know, I might put my paper down, get off the couch and come get it. This is like, no, I'm coming to your house. I'm the one who knocks. I'm the one who pursues. Conversion starts not with your interest in God, but God's interest in you. See, see, Paul is Saul. So, by the way, his, his name is Saul in this story. It eventually becomes Paul. So I'm going to keep saying Saul, Paul interchangeably, but I think you get it. Okay. Um, so Saul in this story, I think we can agree that he wasn't exactly like exploring the claims of Christ. He wasn't on the Damascus road saying, you know, I'm going to go see if these guys have something to say. You know, he's going there to get rid of Christianity. So no, while Paul, excuse me, while Saul was not looking for Jesus, Jesus was looking for Saul. Just like we saw last week with the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, remember that? Just made a big deal about how the spirit was so active in like finding him and pushing out Philip to make sure that this, this, this divine intervention happened. Same thing happened here with Saul that Jesus was pursuing him and pursuing and pursuing him. In fact, when you, if you fast forward to Acts 26, um, then Paul reflects back on his conversion story here in the Damascus Road, and he adds a little piece that we don't see in the story written by Luke because Luke didn't know at that time. Only, only Paul could give that kind of information. So this is what it says in, in Acts 26. And when he fell to the ground, and when we had all fallen to the ground, so there's a group of them, Paul says, I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We read that part, but we didn't have this part. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, I didn't mispronounce that word. It's not goats. It is goads. What is a goad? A goad is a stick uh, that had a sharp piece of metal on the end of it, right? And you would use it to, to, you know, if you're leading some ox or some sheep, you would use this to, to prod them when they were going the wrong direction, right? And so, like, they would prod. And guess what? Animals don't like that, as you can imagine. And so when, you, when they would prod, they would... You know, they try to kick it away. But guess who wins? The guy with the pointy stick wins. And Jesus is saying to Paul, I've been, I've been poking you. You've been trying to go in the wrong direction. And I've been after you. It's hard, isn't it, to resist my pursuit in your life, which means that Jesus was pursuing Paul before the Damascus Road. There were moments in his life where, he, where the Spirit of God was coming and convicting him of the direction that he was going. Convicting him, convicting him, convicting him, poking him, prodding him. Jesus is like, it's hard, isn't it? 
I've, ex- I've experienced that. Before I, before, I just, before I gave my life to Jesus, surrendered to him, uh, I just remember, I didn't have language for it back then, but I just remember coming under moments of heavy conviction, just like feeling terrible. Just like, oh my gosh, what's happening to me? What's happening to me? Maybe that's happening to you. You're like, you're just like, I don't know what to do. I, I guess I better go to church. And, and just kind of every time you try to go this way, God convicts you. Hey, God's pursuing you. He pursues. He is a God that pursues. I love what C.S. Lewis, how he describes this. He says, amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about a man's search for God. To me, as I then was, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. Mice don't search for cats. Cats find mice. Conversion isn't that you read a few books and do a few good deeds to find some peace. Conversion isn't the result of your quest for God. It's the result of God's quest for you, which is comforting. If, you're, if you have, are a Christian, this is comforting. Because if this depends upon you, like, oh, you know, like in a moment of clarity and goodness, I, I could see and I pursued God. And, I, and what happens when you don't, when you're having a bad day? Well, did I, you know, do you, do you lose that? Well, the good news is Paul writes to the Philippians trying to encourage them in their joy He says, he who began a good work, the beginner, the pursuer, he's going to complete it. He's the one who, because I know that if the the mercy of God was to leave me for a second, I would stray. But the God who pursued me, who found me, is sustaining me, and he will complete it until the day he returns. So there's pursuit. Secondly, there is encounter. In verse three, Saul's knocked off his horse by what? A light, a voice? Well, yeah, maybe. But I think the real thing that's happening here is that he is knocked down by the, an encounter with the truth. He encountered a God he didn't make up. He encountered a real God who did not, who had his own reality. You see, prior to this, God, excuse me, Paul related to, uh, God was uh, like a figment of his own imagination. It, it was, God was made up in his mind based upon his own preferences and how he saw God, like this is how I see God to be. And for, and, for, and for Saul, that meant a God who is strong, a strong God after a strong people, people who can make the great, people who can be holy and be just. And, and that was Saul. I mean, he was, he was varsity at, at being good and knowing the Torah and all of that. And he was, he's like, that's who God is. So he, he believed in a God that made sense to him. And here comes these Christians with the scriptures. They're saying, this is the way God is. And they're like, and he thought, he saw Jesus. He's like, look, I believe in a strong God. I, I can't believe that Messiah became weak. I can't believe in a Messiah who was crucified to a cross. That doesn't make sense to me. That's not God. So he pushed them aside. God would never get rid of the temple. That's not God. So he pushed aside Christianity. It's like many modern people push aside Christianity because they wouldn't believe in a severe God. They'd be on the opposite side. If, I, if there is a God, it's a God of love, God who accepts everyone, a God who doesn't, you know, who doesn't force his agenda, who doesn't judge, basically a God who affirms my conception of how I see him. And Paul encountered a God who challenged his perception. He, he met a God who was made up of his own reality. A God like Paul had, a God like a lot of modern people have, is a, is a God that we construct with our own imagination. A God that is nothing more than a projection of your imagination can never contradict you. And you're like, well, what's wrong with that? That sounds like a good thing, right? 
No, it's a bad thing. A God who can never contradict you can never help you. Can never pick you up when you fall. Who can't make you more than you, can't change you, can't transform you because he's not greater than you. And what you and I need more than anything else is we need a God whose reality is bigger than ours. For example, I'll counsel people who struggle with feeling of inadequacy. They feel like their life doesn't count. They feel like they're not loved. They feel like they haven't achieved anything. Now, if that's you, you have a God, and you have a God that you've constructed, he can't help you because that God isn't greater than you. Because the same heart that constructed that God is the same God that's condemning you. That's why it's such good news to read about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is this, for when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. You see, in conversion, you encounter a God that's bigger than you, that just bust up your preconceived new notions. And that's what was so dramatic. In fact, he thought he knew him, but in verse five, he says, who are you, Lord? I, I thought I knew who you were but I don't. I've encountered something different here on this Damascus road. And when you are converted, you encounter a God whose reality is bigger than you, that when you fail, when you don't even live up to your own standards, much less God, when you feel in love, when you feel like an outcast, God comes in and says, no, you're wrong. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. You are infinitely loved. You have an eternal purpose, but that is impossible for God to do unless he's greater than you, unless he's above you, unless he can contradict you, unless he can oppose your will, unless he can knock you off your horse, which he wants to do. The God I encountered, uh, I guess it's been 21 years now. To that point, I served a God, or, or excuse me, God served me. God was someone who had my back and took my orders. So if I was in trouble, okay, it's time to come up here. That's, that's the God I, I didn't, I, he didn't even contradict me. He didn't tell me to do what I didn't want to do. That's not, that can't be God. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I mean, I'm, I'm a 21 years old college student. Like, I, I mean, like to think that there's something above me, that's impossible. <laughs> People who get converted come to the realization that they're dealing with the real God. Cause you know why? Cause God's a real person. He has his own reality. You know, we, we have this issue with the idea of converted being, you know, talking about conversion, but here's what, we have no problem trying to convert God. I'll tell you who you are. I mean, what are you talking about? God is his own person. He's his own reality, which is simultaneously terribly offensive, but wonderfully life-changing. I mean, Paul would wrestle with the same a uh, sense of shame that maybe you feel about pointing to a God who has his own reality. That's why he penned later on in Romans 1.16, very famously, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Sometimes we can be ashamed, for it is the power of God. It's the power of salvation. It's, the, it's how we become, that's why what Jesus was saying, unless you are converted, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And this isn't, again, about moral conformity, but it's news about a person. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who was God, who became a man, who lived without sin. He wasn't religious. He wasn't rebellious. He was perfect. And because he was perfect, he could be our substitute on the cross, dying for our sins. 
And he pursued us like he pursues Paul. He forgives us like he forgave Paul. He saves us like he saved Paul. And he's changing us like he changed Paul. And the power is in the news. I mean, I love good deeds. We love good deeds, serving the poor, loving people, caring for people, love good advice. You know, that's not wise. You probably shouldn't do that. You need some course correction here. Good. We love good deeds. We love good advice. But Christianity is about good news. Other things may help you, but only Jesus can save you. Other things may improve your life on earth, but only Jesus will give you eternal life in heaven. Encountering this God who has his own reality. So there's pursuit, encounter, and then there's surrender. Jesus pursues, he pursues, he pursues. His reality collides with Paul, or I should say Paul collides with his reality. But Saul still has a decision to make. A decision that the other people that he was with obviously didn't make. And Saul did. He was with a crew. They saw the light. They were there. But you have a decision to make. And I think surrender is the right word for it because when God meets us on our Damascus road, he has us surrounded. It's kind of like this old Western gunfight. You know, like if you see these things, the person who ends up surrendering always feels like they have a chance. So they fight and they fight and they fight and fight. They kick against the goad, they kick against the goad, they kick against the goad until finally there's guns pointed in all directions. I surrender. It's that moment of humility when you realize that you have no other options. That's why Isaiah the prophet, he comes to a people and says, why do you buy bread that doesn't satisfy? Why do you, why do you drink water that, you know, it's not gonna quench? Because obviously they had the, the ability to go buy bread and go buy water and they were trying to satisfy, trying to satisfy, trying to satisfy, trying to satisfy. But there's a moment where you realize you're out of options and that's what surrender is. Surrender is I have no other option. Surrender is I completely give my life over to him. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, before God closed in on me, I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out. I had... I had always wanted, above all things, not to be interfered with. Anybody can relate to that? I had wanted to call my soul my own. And then in this moment of conversion, I felt myself being given a free choice. You do have a choice. I could open the door or I could keep it shut. I chose to open. Here it is. Total surrender. I gave in. (laughs) And I admitted that God was God. That night, I felt as if a man of snow at long last was beginning to melt. C.S. Lewis would go on to say that he called himself the most reluctant convert in all of England. But he had to do what Paul did. He had to come to this place of surrender, which means to humble yourself. It means to humble yourself. I mean, check out Paul in, in verse 8. It says, Saul rose from the ground, although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. And for three days, he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. Get the picture. Saul the mighty was now kneeling before God. Saul was the one who saw clearly, now being led by the hand because he's so blind. Saul was the one who was seizing other people. And now Saul is being seized by God. Saul the hammer who broke others was now being broken by God. Surrender is about total humility. It's about bowing the knee, which Christians, which means for all of us, this should be the trajectory of our life. This is not just something that happens once. I surrender. It's, it needs to be an ongoing pursuit of ours. Colossians 2.6 says, as you receive Jesus, so walk in him, which means the same thing that we're talking about, what it means to be converted in that, that moment. But Colossians says, as you receive him, continue to walk that way. 
So there's a sense to which we are saved, but there's also a sense to which we are being saved. Our, our inner man is completely made new. That's a new creation. That's, that's good. That's the way it should be, seated in heavenly places. But our mind, man, it's got some issues. It needs to be renewed. It's got old patterns, ruts, and thinking that has to be transformed. And so you give yourself, you give yourself over to how you came to him. That's how you walk in him, which means that he's, he's still pursuing. He's still pursuing. He's still knocking. Encounter, man, we got to encounter a real God, not a construct. That's why you got to keep going to the Bible. We got to keep experiencing him, keep going to truth, keep going to those moments where we can encounter whatever we need to do to encounter him and, and, and continually, continually surrendering, continually uh, humbling yourself, which would be the trajectory of Paul's life. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but that's why his name was changed. You see, Saul, his, his original name, Saul was the first great king of Israel. And he was, he was a mighty man. He was mighty Saul. It says in Samuel that he stood head and shoulders above his peers. I mean, he, this was, and then Paul was like, yeah, that's a great name. That's the name I want, Saul the mighty. Paul means small. That's the name that he took. So he's, he's Saul the mighty becomes Paul the small. And that would be the trajectory of his life. You know, you'd meet him in Corinthians, which was written, um, um, you know, maybe 17, 20 years after this. And he's like, you know, I'm, the, I'm like the least of the, of the leaders. I'm the least of the apostles. And then in a, a few moments later in his life, he's like, man, I'm like actually the, the, the worst of saints. And then, and then at the end of his life, in the twilight, in the book of Timothy, he's getting ready to pass things off. He's, he says he's run his race. He says, I am the chief of sinners. He kept humbling, kept surrendering. Now, it wasn't like he was off in a corner and lacked confidence. He had amazing confidence. But his confidence was not in himself. It was in God. It was this process of surrendering him, surrendering, surrendering, surrendering. And that's the process you need to be on. Are you, are you like, I want to be Saul the Great. You know, I want the likes. I want the, uh, I want the affirmations. I want the followers. I want the pay raise. I want, the, I want all these things. I want to be noticed. I want to be Saul the Great, or do you want to be Paul the Small? The difference between a Christian and a Pharisee, because they have a lot in common. The difference between a Christian and a Pharisee, a Pharisee claims to see. A Christian knows they're blind. A Pharisee claims to see. A Christian knows that they're blind. So finally, here's the best part. So you have pursuit, encounter, surrender, restoration. The only way to know that you've really experienced conversion and how it changes your life. The proof is in the pudding, so to speak. And Paul had his life changed in a moment. The, the definition of conversion means to change, turn around, alter course, believe, and behave differently. God regenerates your heart. And then when he does that, he begins to restore. He begins to do restoring work in your life. And it restores what sin took away. What, what did sin take away? Well, namely, it took away intimacy. In verse 11, we see here that Paul is praying. Paul is praying for the first time. Now, Pharisees would recite their prayers seven times a day, but there's a difference between saying your prayers and praying. Jesus taught us not to pray like the Pharisees because they, thinking that they think they'll be heard for the many words. Jesus talked about finding a quiet place. Now, on one hand, like there's um, not... And saying that, I'm saying there's not a place for liturgy. 
But what I am saying is like there's a, there's a difference between going through the motions and having a real authentic connection, intimate relationship with God. Religion can, can do this, but only an authentic Christian can actually commune with God. And when, what, when Ananias uh, was told by God to go find him, he said, he's pr- I want you to know he's praying. I want you to know that he's relating to me. He's, I've restored intimacy back to him. And this intimacy will lead to more humility, which won't lead to this. It will lead to joy. Joy is a sign of a maturing relationship with Christ because you are continually and everly, increasingly amazed by the grace of God in your life. I mean, like laughter level amazement. People see you laugh and they're like, what's the joke? And you're like, I'm the joke. I'm the joke. Like, <laughs> like God is this, and I'm like, I'm, ter- I'm this awful person, but he saved me, and he accepts me. That is, a, that is a joke. See, let me show you a chart. So when you, when you, before conversion, you basically think you and God are like the same person. I mean, you're like at the same level. In fact, you may even think that you're a little bit above God, because God does some things that you don't approve of. So maybe you're a little bit, whatever, but you're right there. But when God, during conversion, you know, God, the likes come on and you begin to see his holiness. Oh my gosh. See, like if you read the book of Isaiah, for example, um, Isaiah has this encounter with God. He's like, whoo, woe is me. So he sees the holiness of God, which leads to a deeper knowledge of your sinfulness. See, when, when, when Peter, when he became a Christian too, you read about his story, um, you know, Jesus comes and blesses him and he's kind of like sparring with Jesus, like, you know, Jesus trying to get him to fish differently. He's like, okay, you know, I think I know how to fish. I think I know what I'm doing here. And then this miracle happens and he comes to his feet and he says, whoa, I am a sinful man. But here's the thing. The way, the reason why you're just, the, the mark of a Christian is amazement and laughter is because the more you grow in the knowledge of him and the more you understand your sinfulness, this, the, his grace fills the picture. And the bigger, the more, you're, the, the more you view his holiness, the more you see your own sinfulness, just the bigger his grace gets. Now, we need to encourage each other in this because something else can happen. Let me show you the next slide. If we're not encouraging each other, if, if you don't have a big amazement of his grace and you've been a Christian for a while, you're doing one of two things or both. You're, you're filling it with religion, moralism, self you know, self-justification, legalism, pride, or, and or guilt, fear, shame, insecurity, despair. Can we go back to the other one? That's why we can't have a, a we can't keep our view of God the same. If, if, if Christianity is same old, same old, same old, that's a problem. That means you've fallen into insecurity, despair, or maybe worse, fierce, you know, our, uh, legalism, but we just grow and grow and grow. That's why when we come together, we're like, man, we want to encourage each other to, to worship and to express what's in our hearts. Because if, if what's happening in us is real, there's this thing inside of us that's growing and growing. And what is growing? It's the amazement and what Christ has done for us. And that is what, that is what Christ started to restore to Saul and once restored to you. That's why uh, Martin Lord Jones said the ultimate test of our spirituality is our amazement at the grace of God. Not how many services we go to, verses we can quote. Good to go to services, even better to read verses. But it has to lead to an, an amazement. Those who believe the gospel will begin to behold the gospel and they become like the gospel. So he restores 
intimacy, and then I'll combine these two. He restores intimacy, or excuse me, he restores community and mission. I mean, it's amazing. And Ananias comes to him and, and calls, lays his hand on him, calls him brother. That is an amazing, I mean, he objects. You know, you remember that when we were reading that? He's like, wait a minute. I, you know, do you know, remember Saul? Are you sure? Can you imagine 10 years ago, someone coming to you and saying, hey, like, I want you to go and uh, God comes to you and says, I want you to go and talk to this man, help him. His name's Osama bin Laden. He's got a, he's got a turban on, ZZ top beard. Like, you, you know, you can't miss him. Like, go talk to him. Or someone, I mean, maybe, maybe for you it's Trump. I don't know. Like, whoever it is, whoever it is that you would just not feel comfortable putting your hand on and calling him brother. I mean, this is like the last person, but here's what God did. God was restoring him back into the family of God like that. But he also restored him into mission. He's like, I'm, I, it's not just that you're gonna come and just kind of like, you're gonna, your life is gonna change. I'm gonna put you on my mission. In fact, he says, I'm gonna show you how much you will suffer for my name. Now we're gonna tease this out more next week, but basically it means sacrifice. Like the call, the thing that he restores and restoring purpose, he's recalling you to a life of sacrifice, which should be a good thing because that's what Jesus did. Jesus says, I am master. You call me Lord, your servant, you call me Lord. It's right that you do that, by the way, he says. He says, I took it on the chin, you're gonna take it on the chin. In this life, you will suffer, you will sacrifice because it's the way of the cross, which leads to joy. I know it doesn't make any sense, but that's the life he's called us to. He leads us into mission. So we, he, he brings us into community and mission, and these things intersect in the church. Now, I haven't even told you the most amazing part of this verse. The most amazing part of this verse, or this section of verses, I should say, is when Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Saul's like, I am not persecuting thou. I am persecuting church. But Jesus does not identify the church as an it, does not identify the church as a building. He doesn't even identify the church as a group of people. He identifies the church as himself. Are you tracking with that? In other words, there is no difference in how Jesus feels about how we feel about him or the church. So yeah, I get that. I'm not talking to anyone who's going to actively persecute, but maybe he could come to you and say, you know, Brian, Brian, why are you so casual about me? Brian, Brian, why do you lack so much commitment to me? Brian, Brian, why are you always criticizing me? Brian, Brian, why are you always talking bad about me? Brian, Brian, why are you always giving up on me? We are connected to, and this is amazing. This is why this is amazing. This is This is not just meant to be convicting. It's actually meant to be amazing too. It's amazing how deep Jesus identifies with us. He he so identifies with you and I that he's saying it's it's one and the same. It's, It's one and the same. I mean, you're like, well, you know, the church embarrasses me. Well, it probably embarrasses Jesus too. In fact, if you're disgusted with the church, that's, that's a sign that, you're, that God's working in your life. 
That's one level of maturity. If you would be willing to go a deeper level of maturity, you will not be just disgusted with the church, but you'll be disgusted with yourself. And then if you mature beyond that, you'll re-enter the church, just like Paul did. Was Paul a critic of the church? I think so. You'll, you'll re-enter the church, not as a critic or a consumer, but a contributor, seeking to identify at the... See, Jesus identified. Jesus identified with the church. Now, this is a legit question. This is just for your personal growth. Why would you not identify yourself with the church? Two reasons why you wouldn't. Number one, you see something Jesus doesn't see. I, you know, gee, <laughs> yeah, I get that's good for you, Jesus, but like I see some things, you know. Or maybe, just maybe, you're just not mature and you have some growing up to do. One of those things is true. I'll let you pray about which one's true. So here's another way of saying it. Because he says, you know, he calls himself the body. He says the church is the body of Christ. So it's like, you know, I'm not, punching, I'm not punching you, Jesus. I'm punching the church. He's like, well, that's my body. It's connected to me. The bride of Christ. Hey, I'm not, I'm not knocking your, you know, I think you're great. Your wife's kind of a skank, but I like you. <laughs> like, what? He identifies with the church. We need to identify with the church. So here, here's another way of saying it. However you would want Jesus, however you would want Jesus to feel about how you treat him is how you should treat the church. If you want Jesus to know that you, should, that you really love him, then you should love the church. If you want the, Jesus to know, Jesus, I would do anything for you, then you should do anything for the church. Not because the church is amazing, but because Jesus so, this is, I mean, this is like makes you want, this is like should make you want to love him more because you realize, oh my gosh, like I'm really going to identify. I mean, I've got teenagers now and they don't want to identify with us anymore. I mean, they're like, well, the other day I was just like, why are they walking 10 feet in front? Oh my gosh, they're doing to me what I did to my parents. And there are a lot of like Christian teenagers in the church. It's immaturity. I get it. It's a phase. But growing up, growing up, growing up means seeing it as one and the same. Are you being converted? Do you feel the pursuit of God? Do you, have you been kicking against the goads and finding it difficult to do so? Have you had an encounter with a God who contradicts you? You may be getting converted. Well, you got a choice to make, though. That's surrender. Just like CSOs, you can open the door, close the door, open the door, close the door. You can be like Saul who became Paul. You can be like his crew who left and is a footnote in history. And then here's the good thing. God's going to restore some things in you. And you just keep on, the way you can come to him, you just keep on living that way. Keep on you know, responding to his pursuit. Keep on encountering him. Keep on surrendering to him, and he'll keep restoring things. I mean, my life is a total shock to me. The things that he just keeps putting in there, putting in there, putting in there, he'll do it for you. Why don't we stand?